Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Could an international treaty designed to save the planet from one cataclysm also save us from global warming? This Montreal Protocol has been the best treaty in the environment that we've ever created because of its success protecting the stratospheric ozone layer. But it's also the best treaty we've ever created for protecting the climate. Coming up, Ronald Reagan called the Montreal Protocol a magnificent accomplishment. But if it were used to tame climate change today, would Republicans sign on? Also, we drill down on energy and the midterm election results. It'd be easy. It'd be an easy analysis to put together to say, oh, well, Republicans win, so therefore, you know, we're good to go. It's, we're just going to drill everywhere. Well, that's, that's not the case. Natural gas and the GOP. Drill, baby, drill heads to Capitol Hill. These stories and more just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay with us. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A comprehensive climate energy bill is dead in Congress, and the midterm elections put the final nail in the coffin. It's doubtful that you could get the votes uh, to pass that through the House this year, or next year, or the year after. But wait, don't bury climate change legislation just yet, says President Obama. Uh, Cap and trade was just one way of skinning the cat. It was not the only way. It was a means, not an end. Another means may be the Montreal Protocol. In 1987, the nations of the world came together in Canada and agreed to save the planet from a chemical catastrophe. They signed an historic treaty to phase out compounds that were destroying the world's protective ozone layer. Now, 23 years later, delegates are meeting in Bangkok to discuss if the Montreal Protocol can be repurposed to save us from climate-changing gases. Derwood Zelke is at the meeting. He's president of the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. Today, many people look back after they see the success of the Montreal Protocol, and they say, that was easy. It wasn't easy. It was a tremendous struggle to get uh, the political alignment. And in fact, the treaty started in a very, very modest way. Well, give me a history of the Montreal Protocol back in 1987. What was it designed to do, and, and how did it do it? Montreal Protocol is designed to phase out dangerous chemicals that were destroying the stratospheric ozone layer, or rather that were thought to be destroying the stratospheric ozone layer. Because when the treaty was originally negotiated, we did not yet have empirical evidence that these suspected chemicals, CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons, were actually doing what the scientists thought they were doing. We thought that these were the modern chemical that societies could not do without. They were used in about 240 industry sectors, and there were billions of dollars at stake. There were hundreds of thousands of jobs, and there was powerful opposition. The two scientists who first hypothesized that the CFCs were destroying the stratospheric ozone layer, 
Dr. Sherry Rowland and uh, Dr. Mario Molina were vilified by industry. They were uh, parodied in uh, popular press. They were uh, the object of uh, counter-scientific articles. They struggled mightily until later they won the Nobel Prize for their uh, brilliant deduction that these CFCs were destroying the ozone layer. So despite all this opposition, the Montreal Protocol was incredibly successful, am I right? Montreal Protocol is the most successful environmental treaty the world has ever created, bar none. It has phased out 96 chemicals by more than 97%. Uh, if we had not phased out these chemicals, we would suffer millions of cases of skin cancer, millions of cases of cataracts, tremendous damage to our agricultural sector, and no one on the planet would be able to stay outside for more than 10 minutes without receiving a severe sunburn. That's how serious the threat was. So while Montreal was designed to deal with the ozone hole, it's been able to do what no other international treaty has been able to do, which is curb greenhouse gases. It's very important to understand that most of the chemicals that destroy the ozone layer are also powerful greenhouse gases. So the Montreal Protocol, while it was solving the stratospheric ozone problem, also has solved an amount of the climate problem that otherwise today would be equal to the contribution of CO2 which is the dominant factor in climate change. It's done five to ten times more than the Kyoto Protocol is striving to do in terms of reducing uh, climate emissions. That's a tremendous success. So now we see that this treaty has done the best job in the world for climate, and the parties are asking, what more can it do for climate? So the idea is to amend the Montreal Protocol so that it deals with these uh, super greenhouse gases, HFCs. Um, will that require the, uh, the Congress to re-ratify the treaty? It will. They'll have to ratify the amendment. All the parties will have to ratify the amendment. That's a pretty good bet in the United States. You have to remember that this treaty was started under President Ronald Reagan. It has always enjoyed strong bipartisan support in the Congress. We're pretty confident that uh, even a more conservative Congress that we've been given after the recent election will agree to, to ratify. Give a look back and say, well, 1987, Ronald Reagan, a Republican, was president. We had uncertain scientists about the uh, ozone hole, tremendous ideological opposition, deep vested interests, and lots of jobs at stake. And yet the world moved rapidly to a treaty, and a successful treaty at that. Do you ever say, wow, how did we do that, and why can't we do it now? I think you've posed the, the central questions for climate change. What can we learn from the Montreal Protocol? I think the first lesson and the central lesson is start and strengthen. Start, get experience in solving the problem. Gain some confidence that you know what you're doing, and then do more of what works. You know, we're so polarized in the climate debate that we've, uh, you know, we've tied ourselves in knots. 
And I think that's partly because we tried to do everything in one international negotiation. In hindsight, probably not a good idea. Richard Benedict, uh, who negotiated the Montreal Protocol originally for the United States, has compared the climate negotiations to a medieval fair, fire-eaters and jugglers and uh, every kind of clown you could imagine. You cannot negotiate as efficiently in that kind of a context. Uh, It's a different time, but it's not so different that we can't reproduce this if we disaggregate the climate problem, take the lessons of Montreal, and solve pieces of this problem as we go forward with unique governance systems that develop the expertise to solve that part of the problem. Well, Mr. Zelke, I want to thank you very much. I really appreciate it, and I learned a lot. Good. My pleasure. Speaking to us from Bangkok, Derwood Zelke, president of the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. In the Gulf of Mexico, just seven miles from the site of the BP oil rig disaster, scientists have discovered an ecosystem in collapse. Pictures taken by a submersible robot 4,600 feet down show images of dead and dying corals on the muddy seafloor. Among those studying the images is Eric Cordes, a biologist from Temple University, and his graduate student, Andrea Quattrini, who was aboard the surface vessel when the photos were taken. We hit this spot and all of the coral colonies attached to this area, most of them were either recently dead or dying. Most of the colonies, about 50% of all the colonies, you could see tissue sloughing off and dead skeleton with no live tissue. I was really saddened by this news. We hadn't seen anything that was visually compelling like this. We were really I think all hoping that the deepwater corals had somehow dodged a bullet here. When you say corals sloughing off uh, this tissue, I think most people think of corals like a rock. A coral is a living animal. It has a calcium carbonate skeleton with a very thin layer of tissue covering the entire thing. And in this case, you could see the skeleton and the tissue actually falling off of the skeleton. It sounds gruesome. It was... A bit gruesome. It was a very sad sight. To see something like this was really clear evidence that there was a catastrophic event that caused this. And you think it's oil that killed them? Well, we don't really know quite yet what happened, but some of the evidence is pointing to the Horizon incident. In 15 years of studying deep-sea corals and a lot of my time in the Gulf of Mexico, this does not look like it could have been caused by a natural occurrence. Now, could it be from the dispersant and not from the oil? We actually don't know exactly what caused it. It's likely that there were some toxins present that caused this um, reaction by the corals, but it was most likely the combination of the oil and the dispersant. Are you finding this in just this one area near the wellhead, or are you finding it in other coral colonies? So we got to see this one site. There are a lot of other sites in the area that we know have the potential to have these coral communities on them. In fact, about 25 that some of our collaborators have picked out within a 10-mile radius of the Deepwater Horizon, where we're likely to find more corals. We'll be going back in about three weeks, and we'll be visiting more of these sites and looking for more of this evidence.
So, Dr. Cordes, what are the long-term effects of, of this? Well, the recovery of these corals is going to take a really long time. They're really slow growing. Everything in the deep sea tends to get slowed down, mostly because it's so cold. Some of the corals' related species to grow that large would take at least decades to even centuries. My next question is an insensitive question. Why should I care? That's a question I've been hearing a lot recently. Just like the shallow water coral reefs, the deep water corals create a lot of habitat for other organisms. There's a high diversity down there. There are a wide variety of species. There's also a direct connection between the deep water corals and the shallow water ecosystem of the Gulf of Mexico. All of the corals are reliant on the productivity at the surface for all of their food, so there's a direct tie there. There are also a lot of species that live in shallow water but will actually migrate down to the depths during the day to try and hide in the dark and avoid predation. And they interact directly with these deep water reefs and then return to the shallow water. Anything that happens in deep water is going to have repercussions in the shallow water and in the wider ecosystem of the Gulf. Well, I want to thank you both very much. I really appreciate it. Sure. It was good talking to you. Yeah, thanks a lot. Biologist Eric Cordes from Temple University and his graduate student, Andrea Quattrini. Just ahead, natural gas is booming and a new fossil fuel-friendly Congress is ready to open the tap. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Big news now about natural gas. These days, it's almost as cheap as coal, due in part to a new method of drilling called hydraulic fracking. Drillers pump water and chemicals deep into underground shale formations and blast the natural gas out. Halliburton developed the method... Now the EPA has subpoenaed the company for refusing to disclose which chemicals they're using. Meanwhile, there's a gold rush on for natural gas locked in the Marcellus Shale Formation in Pennsylvania. Big oil companies have been gobbling up independent gas frackers there. In the latest deal, Chevron just bought Atlas Energy for $4 billion. The other big natural gas news was Election Day. Living on Earth's Jeff Young looks at the political landscape and finds it's good for gas. The day after his election shellacking, President Obama took a question at a press conference. Where can Republicans and Democrats find common ground? Energy, the president said, and he emphasized one specific form of energy. We've got uh, terrific natural gas resources in this country. Are we doing everything we can to develop those? Not far away on Washington's K Street, Chris Tucker and his office mates liked what they heard. We all sort of looked around at each other, each other and said, yeah, he's right. And then our second reaction was, wow, we can't believe you just said that. <laughs> Tucker is with a group called Energy In-Depth, which does public relations work for independent natural gas drillers. Tucker says it's not that surprising that the president should turn to natural gas. There's already bipartisan support for using the huge supplies coming online. And Tucker says the industry's wish list is a short one. We actually don't need a whole lot of policies. We don't need tax breaks or handouts or bailouts. Or We just need to be able to do it. We just need to be able to um, have rules in place that work. We need to have regulations in place that are stringent, but at the same time that we could predict. Congressional Democrats had pushed legislation to limit possible water contamination from hydraulic fracturing of shale gas. But many of that bill's co-sponsors lost on November 2nd. 
Republican strategist Karl Rove told a recent gas industry conference that Republican victories mean the industry need not worry about more regulation. Tucker says that sounds premature and perhaps counterproductive. It'd be an easy analysis to put together to say, oh, well, Republicans win, so therefore, you know, we're good to go. It's, we're just going to drill everywhere. Well, that's, that's not the case. Tucker says the EPA is in the midst of a thorough review of hydraulic fracturing, and some companies are voluntarily disclosing fracking chemicals. And concerns about water quality are likely more regional than partisan. The industry prefers to keep regulation at the state level, and that means state election results could have a big impact, especially in Pennsylvania. The Keystone State elected a Republican legislature and governor, and Pennsylvania is at the cutting edge of a drilling boom. Right now what we're having is a gas rush. We happen to have the mother of all natural gas deposits under our feet in the Marcellus Shale deposit. Jan Jarrett leads the environmental group Penn Future. She notes the gas industry has given nearly a million dollars to governor-elect Tom Corbett over his political career. The drilling industry spent at least $3 million in campaign contributions. We would hope that that would not change the administration's stance towards environmental protection and oversight of this industry that has a really big impact. Pennsylvania's outgoing Democratic governor, Ed Rendell, placed a moratorium on new drilling leases on state forest land. Corbett says he'll rescind that. Pittsburgh Post-Gazette columnist Brian O'Neill has been writing about another aspect of natural gas and state government. Pennsylvania has no severance tax on drilling. Everybody's got one but us. As I said in an earlier column, there's only two places without this tax, uh, Pennsylvania and Fantasyland. With the state looking at a multi-billion dollar deficit, O'Neill wonders where money will come from for, among other things, the Department of Environmental Protection. That's a serious concern to a lot of people. I mean, there are real environmental issues, and I don't think the state is prepared to deal with it right now. While many grassroots environmental groups are focused on the potential damage from drilling, some Washington environmental groups want to expand the use of natural gas because it's much cleaner burning than coal or oil. That's created considerable tension within the environmental community. Dan Weiss directs climate strategy at the Democratic-leaning think tank Center for American Progress. Both the groups that want to use more natural gas and those that want additional protections are correct. Natural gas produces 50% less global warming pollution compared to coal and about one-third less pollution compared to oil. So the expansion of natural gas as a fuel can really reduce emissions by a sizable amount. Weiss's group did a study that found a shift to natural gas for big trucks could cut oil use by a million barrels a day, about 5% of our current use. But Weiss is also concerned about lax regulation on drilling. He sees opportunity to do both. In any natural gas program that moves forward that encourages the use of more gas needs to also include additional protections. It ought to include requirements that the companies report on the toxic chemicals they use to produce the gas and that they ought to make sure they protect the drinking water and air quality. So can natural gas fuel some bipartisan cooperation? The first test could come in the lame duck session of Congress. The Senate is set to vote on a bill to use more natural gas for heavy-duty trucks. The co-sponsors are Democratic leader Harry Reid and arch-conservative Republican Tom Coburn. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young.
more than half the world's population lives in cities. In reality, the city has assumed the role of a monstrous parasite when viewed from an ecological perspective. That unflattering assessment of today's city comes from microbiologist and public health professor Dixon Despamiers. Despamiers' new book is The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century. Despamiers says growing crops hydroponically, without soil, in high-rise buildings could be the way to go. He told Living on Earth Steve Kerwood he was inspired by his students at Columbia University. A full class of students that didn't want to hear any more of gloom and doom about the environmental destruction that was going on outdoors, they said, we want to work on something more positive. So I let them. I said, this is your money. This is your time. What would you like to do? About a week later, they came back to me and they said, we think rooftop gardening in New York City would be a good idea. So I said, great. Tell me how many acres of rooftop we've got. Tell me which crops you would grow and tell me how many people you can feed with 2,000 calories a day per person. They answered that question and they could feed about 2% of Manhattan only. So I said, wait a minute now, don't get discouraged here. Take your idea off the roof and move it into the building itself. And Let's talk about how many floors of a building you could actually do this in. That began the discussion. So if I were to be standing in front of a vertical farm, my eyes closed and open them, what would I see? Oh, you'd be amazed. You'd be absolutely amazed. First of all, you wouldn't see the building because all you would see would be the plants growing inside of a totally transparent building. It would look like the plants were being suspended in midair and they were growing on. You couldn't actually tell what they were growing on. And in fact, they're not growing in soil at all. They're being grown hydroponically. Where do you get the nutrients if you use hydroponics? So all you have to do is line up all the chemicals that plants need and all the chemicals that humans need, which is about six more than plants need, and combine them together in the right ratios, dissolve them into water, and feed them to your plants. Most people would cringe when they hear that for the first time, but no one would cringe if I told you, oh, it's just like using miracle Grow on your plants. And Oh, yeah, I understand that part. How feasible do you think this is, Professor? I mean, what are the the present examples of vertical farms? Oh, there are none as we speak, but I can almost guarantee you that within a year from now, there will be many... The country of Qatar has an enormous interest in this. China, India, they're very interested in food security and food safety. They want food that's produced by themselves. And if you live in Qatar, that's not going to happen unless somehow you import all the soil. And even then, they don't have the right climate for all of this. So everything that they're going to do has to be done indoors. If you go around the world and you say, where would vertical farming fit in beautifully into the needs of those places – You can find places like Iceland that have no soil basically whatsoever. They have six months of darkness. How how can they possibly grow anything there? If you grow it indoors and you use geothermal energy for your grow lights, the next thing you know, you've got vertical farms going up. So in the vertical farm, how do you deal with the waste? Right. Well, we don't call it that. We call it unrealized energy. Let's take corn for an example. I would take that part that we don't eat. I would dry it down to completion. I would then powder it. And I would run it through a device, which is currently in use throughout Japan, called the plasma arc gasifier. And what that does is it takes any solid material and reduces it back to its elements. And what you get back from that device is the energy to run the device first. You get no residual material that you have to worry about. And the last thing you get back, which is much more important, is that you get some product produced by this process that you can then use in the form of a gas to burn and to create carbon dioxide, water, and heat. And the heat is then used to generate energy. The carbon dioxide and water can be fed right back into the vertical farm. It's a closed-loop agricultural system, basically. 
Okay, today's agriculture and and new food movement is predicated on a couple of things, organic agriculture, locality, and seasonality. What about thinking of June and strawberries, that sort of thing? I don't blame you. I think I can't argue against a fresh-picked strawberry in the wild. I'm, um, I love wild strawberries, and people don't even know what a wild strawberry looks like, most of them. People criticize hydroponically grown artificial, they call it artificial food, but I would just call it indoor farming. They used to criticize a lot of the uh, products produced by these farms because they didn't taste good. They looked great, but when you got them to the table, they had nothing in common with the plants that you expected them to be. That was about 10 to 15 years ago, and I think once consumerism said, you know, we don't want plants that look good, we want plants that taste good, (laughs) they went back and reexamined all of the qualities of plants. They found out very soon that the reason why outdoor plants taste so good some years but not every year is because of the stresses that the plants have undergone during the growing season, particularly just before harvest. So to know what the characteristics of the plants are to begin with means that you can control it. What do traditional farmers think of this idea? You would expect I get a lot of hate mail, (laughs) but I get a lot of curious uh, mail from farmers who uh, they want to know about the ease of hydroponic farming. They want to know about the productivity of it. They want to know about the yields. A lot of them have seen the light in the sense that how many good years in a row do you think a farmer gets? I don't care where they live and I don't care what crop they're growing. If you have 10 years in a row, I'll be willing to bet you that you don't get more than four or five good years out of that. So they're looking for alternatives. They're curious. They're not threatened at all by this. So where's the natural connection to the land and the earth for people in this? Yeah, there, there's no natural connection to the earth. And I must qualify that statement by saying that since farming is only 12,000 years old, and since we are, at least in terms of evolution, about 200,000 years old, farming is a really very recent addition to the human technology tool chest. And let's say, for instance, it's not possible to address climate issues, and the climate just keeps getting worse. You know what happens to farming? For every degree of increase in the average temperature of the planet's atmosphere, it's estimated we lose about 10% of the agrable land on this planet. If that continues up to 5 degrees, you can see the consequences will be horrible for an ever-increasing population of people unless we learn how to farm in another way. So the choices are almost zero. I I think we have to address how can a city live like an ecosystem. That's the bottom line for this whole project is to make food production at the center of an ecological behavior pattern and make them imitate the balanced ecosystems that are still left. Dixon Depommier talking with Eloise Steve Kerwood. The book is The Vertical Farm, Feeding the World in the 21st Century. The Thanksgiving season is near, and yet for many families in the U.S., the economy gives little to be thankful for. At this year's dinner, they'll have to do without many of the fixings and blessings of years past. These days, nearly 42 million Americans receive monthly help from the federal program once known as food stamps. Today, it's SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Now some cities are also trying to help. Eloise Jessica Elise Smith went shopping with some people receiving SNAP benefits, trying to balance a healthy diet with limited incomes. On a recent afternoon, the farmer's market in Boston's Copley Square is bustling with energy. Today, a group from the Boston Living Center is on a field trip. We decided to come to the market today to learn how to use the food stamps 
and also use the Boston Bounty Box. Amber Hansen is the Boston Living Center's registered dietitian. She organized this outing to help the center's HIV-positive members shop for produce using Bounty Bucks, the city's program that doubles federal SNAP benefits. It's a dollar-for-dollar dollar match up to $10. Do you want some cauliflower or are you good? How much is this? $4 a pound. You could roast it with olive oil and garlic and salt if you just chop it up and then put some oil on it. Do you have olive oil or canola oil even? Both of those are healthy, good fats. Hansen gives Carlos tips on how to choose and cook his produce. For Carlos and others living with compromised immune systems, fresh fruits and vegetables are especially important for their nutrition. Janet's another member of the Boston Living Center. When you're living with HIV, even though now with the medicines, a lot of people are living longer, but um, it's very important to take care of yourself. Good nutrition is kind of a way to fight back. But fresh produce can be prohibitively expensive. Boston Bounty Bucks is trying to make healthy food more attainable for low-income residents. Edith Murnane is Boston's director of food initiatives. When I visited her at her office in City Hall, she told me this program is all about accessibility. Farmers markets are a really interesting way to get fruits and vegetables into the inner city. I'm not only talking about physical accessibility, but it's really economic accessibility. And the Boston Bounty Box really gets at that. The program also helps out farmers. It makes it economically viable for a farmer to come to the inner city. It makes it economically feasible. There are now 21 farmers markets that participate in the program. Murnane says this shows the city's strong commitment to public health. The program is helping the city's farmers markets accommodate SNAP users by providing grants for new technology. Lee Piper is the assistant farm manager at the Copley Square Market. We have a wireless terminal here at the market, so we can take your EBT card and swipe it through. The terminal logs on to each person's SNAP benefits and matches up to $10 in bounty bucks. Piper shows Living Center members how to use their electronic benefit transfer, or EBT cards. So I swipe this, and now you need to enter your four-digit PIN number. Okay. Piper hands Carlos his receipt and counts out 20 bounty bucks. 16... 17, 18, 19, and 20. So that's what you can spend. All right. Okay. Armed with his 20 bounty bucks, Carlos decides what to buy. What I would like to buy, se llama color, color green. I love uh, romaine lechuga, lettuce. Carrying bags of lettuce, collard greens, onions, and mushrooms, Carlos gets in line to pay. Do you want me to load that bag up for you? Thirteen seventy-five is your total. Gracias. Thank you. So the bounty bucks are big help. Oh my God. Yeah, this, right? This is like, for me, it's $7. 50% discount. Yeah. $20, $10. And I'm more positive that I come back more often. That's exactly why Boston sponsors bounty bucks. To have customers return to the market throughout the growing season and eat more fruits and vegetables. The program has become a model for other cities. Farmers markets around the country are starting to add EBT stations, and a few other programs offer financial incentives. The goals are the same, to improve health and nutrition in traditionally underserved populations. How many pounds is that? This is one. 
For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Smith. So we could just get a couple? up a novel way to protect groundwater that's just ahead on living on earth support for the environmental health desk at living on earth comes from the cedar tree foundation support also comes from the richard and rhoda goldman fund for coverage of population and the environment and from gilman ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change this is living on earth on pri public radio international It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Time now to open the yellow email. A few weeks ago, we reported on a new international agreement designed to cut the emission of greenhouse gases from jet airplanes. In our interview with Sarah Burt from Earth Justice, she told us things in the sky could be a lot more efficient. For example, we use in the United States a ground-based navigation system, um, which means that aircraft actually have to zigzag across the sky. So they have to lower their altitude to make contact with navigation systems on the ground and then go back to higher altitude again. Whereas if we had a satellite-based navigation system, they'd be able to fly at a more constant altitude, which would be much more efficient. Many LOE listeners, including Richard Roden of Pittsburgh, zagged when Sarah Burt zigged. This is utterly false, writes Mr. Roten. No changes in altitude are required for proper navigation. Well, to help us straighten up and fly right, we called Paul Takamoto of the Federal Aviation Administration. Seems planes don't need to fly up and down to make contact with ground control, but they do gently zigzag from one directional beacon to the next. So if, if you look at their route... From a distance, it's essentially a straight line, but as you get closer and closer, you'll see that there are actually uh, geometric edges to that line because they're flying from one ground-based nav aid to the next. And Paul Takamoto says in the works is that satellite system that will smooth things out in the future. Thanks for setting us straight, Paul. Our interview with super-safe, fuel-efficient champion trucker Carl Crides drove many listeners to send in their fuel-saving driving tips. Steve emailed, I set my cruise control at 60 and let the world buzz by. I'm in no hurry. I find myself with the same crowd at the next light anyway. They've just been sitting there longer. And we got this comment from Alan Bow, who tunes in to KRCC in Colorado Springs. I never drive around in a shopping center trying to get the closest parking space to the entrance. I take the space at the end of a row of cars and park, and if I can pull through, I do so, so I don't waste fuel backing out. And then I walk to the entrance, maybe a few more steps, but I save time and don't waste fuel. And as promised, we're sending out official LOE tire gauges to those whose fuel-saving tips we used on the air. And if something we say gets your pressure up or lets you down, let us know. Our email address is comments at LOE.org. That's comments at LOE.org. Or go to our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Michigan is awash in water. There are the Great Lakes, of course, loads of streams and rivers, and an underground aquifer flowing with tens of billions of gallons of water a day. But the groundwater only seems endless. So when food giant Nestle announced plans to tap and bottle underground water in western Michigan, many residents became worried and decided to act. 
And as Andrew Stelzer reports, there's now a growing movement to turn Michigan's groundwater into a public trust owned by state residents. For Michiganders, getaways on the shores of Lake Michigan are practically a birthright. Summers, it's to escape blazing Midwestern heat. In the colder months, it's a haven for cross-country skiing, hiking, and ice fishing. And the same water that fills the lakes makes western Michigan farm country, a top cherry and apple producer. If we open this, see that's, the well is in the ground. The, the pump and everything is in the hole down there, 100 and, almost 190 feet. Let me get some water running and see if it comes on to Dave Smeltzer owns and operates Perklin Orchards, an apple and cherry farm about five miles from Lake Michigan in Bear Lake. Smeltzer estimates he uses about 1.7 million gallons of well water a year to irrigate his fields and cool his cherries after they're picked. There's so much water under his land, his two wells have never run dry in 50 years. And he has no concern that the future will be any different even for his neighbors, who run larger operations. Some of these guys are running the wells constantly. I can imagine how much withdrawal. And yet, there's still water. There's still water. It's recharged uh, Lake Michigan. The level of Lake Michigan is not dropping. There's water available for us to use. We need to understand that water is renewable, just like trees. You can plant trees. It rains. There's water is renewable. It's always there. Smelter's confidence in an infinite water supply is pretty common among Michiganders. Many towns around here don't even have water systems. Everyone just digs a well and gets their water off their own land, for free. But a couple of bottled water plants have brought the question of water regulation and use to a head. The Nestle company wanted to extract water from a shallow stream for its Ice Mountain brand. They were talking about pumping, you know, over 100,000, maybe even a quarter of a million gallons a day. Jay Peasley is a board member on the White River Watershed Partnership and was part of the group that sued Nestle. So are you talking about, you know, cutting the flow by, I think it was 20% or something. And it's a, it's a blue ribbon trout stream up here. It's, uh, they have native brookies in it. So not only would the fish be impacted, so would everything else that lives here. You know, the goldfinch, the eagles, just everything that uh, live in this area. Amid an uproar, Nestle had to cancel its White River plans. At another Nestle site, a judge agreed the company's project would sharply reduce the flow of the Little Muskegon River. But the ruling also changed the equation for such projects. Before, you could use water until it affected your neighbor. Now, the economic benefit of extracting groundwater could outweigh ecological harm. That got the attention of State Representative Dan Scripps, whose district covers 100 miles of Lake Michigan coast. Even though you're causing harm to the resource, even though it's not sustainable and you're, you're hurting your neighbor's ability to access their well and their water, now if, if you can show a large enough profit, we may let you do it anyway. Well, that, I think, puts us on a slippery slope. So Scripps has proposed a solution in the state legislature. He wants to put Michigan's groundwater into what's called a public trust. It's a designation that already protects most rivers, lakes, and streams in Michigan. With this bill, the water underground would now also be owned by all residents of Michigan and protected by the state. A hedge, perhaps, against a future water-limited world.
The statistics globally are that there is a global water crisis and the scarcity and demand is going to strip supply by 30% in, what, 20 or 30 years of most recent reports I've seen. That's attorney Jim Olson. He argued the case against Nestle. So, uh, you know, those people have their heads in the sand to believe that we are somehow... uh, have this unlimited supply and the rest of the world won't come at it when they're thirsty. Olson's concerned about a day when climate change could turn this region into a no-cost freshwater fountain for the world. There will be very little that people will be able to do to stop the transport of water out of the Great Lakes Basin. But not all Michiganders are concerned about a run on the state's water supply by drought-driven outsiders. This public trust idea is seen as a threat by some who worry the law would give the government too much control and lead to the taxing and regulation of people's wells. People like orchard owner Dave Smeltzer. I just fundamentally and philosophically disagree with Representative Scripps on this issue because there's adequate protection for water in Michigan now. So in addition, this additional layer of legislation intrudes more into a personal use of the water, and the private property rights thing. Additionally, industries that use large amounts of water are concerned the law might prevent them from getting it for free. And that could have an economic ripple effect. Eric Newbecker is a geologist at his family's well-digging business, the Raymer Company, in Marne, Michigan. They drill more than 250 wells every year. The abundant groundwater in the state of Michigan is one reason why farmers, the fruit growers are here. And now if we make it unattractive for them to be in business here, and that would have a, an adverse effect on, on our business because there'd be fewer wells to work on, fewer wells to drill. It just have a total you know, negative effect on the entire economy. Representative Scripps says his bill would not result in any taxes at all. He says it's essential that the Great Lakes water, which accounts for more than 20 percent of the world's surface freshwater supply, is protected at all stages, not just above ground where we can see it. If we don't have protections on every stage of the water cycle, the truth is that we don't really have protections on the Great Lakes because they're all connected. Because a, a private right to water, if the water's not there, doesn't mean a whole lot. Vermont and Hawaii already hold groundwater in a kind of trust, and the results there have been positive. But Michigan has never suffered a significant water shortage, so preventing a future one will likely be a hard sell in the state legislature next year. For Living on Earth, I'm Andrew Stelzer in Benzie County, Michigan. It's a two-hour flight from Brisbane, Australia, to what was once called Hell in Paradise. Remote Norfolk Island is 13 square miles of volcanic rock rising out of the crystal-clear South Pacific. It's home to 2,000 people and one major tourist attraction. Each year, 30,000 tourists come to see what's left of Norfolk Island's 18th-century penal colony, a deplorable place where inhumane conditions earn Norfolk its nickname. But Norfolk Island is now working on a new reputation— 
Scientists plan to turn it into a living laboratory, a giant experiment designed to solve two of the world's most vexing problems, global warming and obesity. The idea, a carbon credit card that would help Norfolk Islanders reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and the size of their wastes. Dr. Gary Egger is in charge of the plan. He's a professor of lifestyle medicine and applied health promotion at Southern Cross University in New South Wales. Hi, Professor. G'day, Bruce. So tell me about this card. Ultimately, there would be an, an electronic card, and that electronic card may be on an existing credit card or it may be a totally standalone card, so that when somebody goes to buy their petrol or their power, uh, not only do they pay in money, but it comes off the carbon units that they have been allocated uh, for free at the start of a set period. Uh, and let's say that after they've paid all their power for that period, they've got 100 carbon units left. They can then cash that 100 in at the carbon bank and make money out of it, and hopefully improving their health over the long term. How could it improve their health? Well, for example, if you're walking or riding a pushbike instead of driving your car, presumably by not burning the carbon, you will increase your physical activity level, which is going to help the health. But then ultimately, we also hope to look at foods and to put a carbon price and a health price on food so that carbon units are detracted for unhealthy and high carbon emitting food. So if I were a Norfolk Islander and I had one of these carbon credit cards, if I reduced my purchase of gas, my credits get stored in the card and I can conceivably get some money uh, and that's paid to me and uh, and, and that's a good thing for the planet. It's a good thing for me. Exactly. That's the way it's designed. Now, long term, it's quite possible, too, that those people who don't reduce their emissions and, in fact, become very profligate in their use of, of energy, um, who are more likely to be the rich, may have to go and buy more units as the units go down each year, as the number of units go down. But that's still to be determined by the islanders. We haven't instituted that and we haven't suggested that at this stage. We want to make it a totally positive approach because uh, one of the things that we're testing, whether the public will accept it, because if it's not acceptable to the public, then it's unlikely to be picked up in this day and age by any government any, anywhere around the world. So basically reducing your carbon footprint and your waste size. Yep, that's right. Are, are people that live on this island, are they um, overly obese? They're about the same as the rest of Australia, and Australia is not far behind the United States in terms of obesity. So we're, we're uh, up in the top six or seven in the world. As happens with rich countries, as a country gets richer, it tends to get fatter. But it seems to me one of the outcomes of this could be that you reduce climate change gases and nothing changes with obesity. That's another possibility, of course, because, for example, if you got people out of their gas-driven cars and into electric cars, that may reduce the carbon emissions, but it's not going to help their obesity because they'll, they'll still be driving around the town. But as I say, this is just a trial. It, it has to be tested, uh, and this is the best way to test it on a, on a self-contained island. And it has to be democratic uh, in this day and age as well. It can't be imposed, so the, it has to be run by the islanders themselves. And the, the reason I'm going out there tomorrow is that uh, we've been attacked by uh, some of the far right here in the climate change, uh, one particular shock jock in Australia. His name is Andrew Bolt, and he's a bit similar to your Rush Limbaugh. Well, let's see if we can tune some of that in and, and play for our, our listeners. NTR. Now it's time for Andrew Bolt. Thanks to their ration of carbon credits runs out. 
and you've made food too expensive for them to buy. What happens to them? Well, again, uh, they get money back from doing the right things. No, but they've done the wrong thing because that's why they're fat and poor. So this shock jock, uh, uh, it's kind of a right-wing radio guy? He did an interview with me. Uh, in which he didn't ask the questions about uh, it being voluntary and being run by the islanders and so on. And then as a result of that, he then attacked me personally. So your job now is to, is to sell it to the islanders. Well, we, we had sold it to the islanders. I mean, that's the whole, pro- the whole thing. This is not something that's been imposed. It was, we've been a, a year now in discussion with the parliament and with the people on the island. But uh, up until such time as uh, there was an adverse reaction, the islanders uh, were sort of only minimally interested. Now they're more interested, and we have to uh, explain it in, in much more detail to them. So what are you going to call this carbon credit card? That, again, is up to the islanders. Uh, They came up with the name for the project, which is a niche project, N-I-C-H-E, which is Norfolk Island Carbon and Health Evaluation Program. And it fits nicely because it is a niche island and this is a niche program. And it's a test, as I keep saying. But but again, I go back to this notion and I I plead... um, ignorance to some extent on the whole climate change notion in the sense that we are health scientists who are looking to do something about the major health epidemics of the day, that is obesity and type 2 diabetes, and we're looking to do it within a context of being able to also reduce pollution and emissions, which nobody has has looked at to date. Dr. Egger, good luck. Thanks very much, Bruce. Gary Egger is a professor of lifestyle medicine at Southern Cross University in New South Wales. We leave you this week surrounded by budgies. The deserts of Australia are home to the budgerigar. These wild parakeets wake at dawn, chatter amiably, and then flutter off in groups to feast on seeds. Andrew Skiak found these colorful birds frolicking down under in the McDonald Ranges in Central Australia and recorded them for his CD called Happy Budgies. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Srishkandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Sammy Souza, and Emily Guerin. Our interns are Nora Doyle Burr and Hannah Lyles. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is LOE's executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. 
the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.